This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. This is indeed The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Congratulations, you have found us. And it is great to be with you, hanging out with you all, truly uh, the highlight of my week. So come on in, grab a stool by the fire, and you are among friends. Uh, We are coming to you live from our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, in the Liberty Village neighborhood of Toronto, Canada, uh, AM 740 and 96.7 FM. I've mentioned this before. I just find it so amazing, serendipitous, if you will, given the things that we talk about on the program that we are uh, broadcasting out of Toronto, but... Obviously, you know, what we talk about has to do with maintaining personal freedoms and liberties and so forth. And here we are broadcasting from the Liberty Village neighborhood of Toronto. And we're right here on Jefferson Avenue to boot. I know my American friends will appreciate that. Uh, Chris Milligan is a publisher of some very dangerous books. And he's also a longtime JFK assassination researcher. In fact, every year... Chris puts on an Oswald conference, Lee Harvey Oswald, and he's standing by and will join us momentarily to talk about the JFK assassination. Specifically, I think we'll uh, sort of drill down on Oswald's time spent in New Orleans in the months before the murder of President Kennedy, the summer of 1963. Uh, Looking forward to that. Uh, Ian Robertson is here, twisting the dials and knobs, our rockabilly friend. I'm thinking Ian might be, in fact, the reincarnation of Eddie Cochran. What do you think? He's nodding approvingly. Not many 20-somethings that even know Eddie Cochran, but he's... You get James Dean as well? I can see that for sure. Uh, You're an old soul, to be sure. Albert Vinzel is here. Albert and I have posted our usual assortment of tantalizing tidbits in the uh, slide carousel at Strange Planet. That's the new website, strangeplanet.ca. It's really just a a landing page, a platform, if you will, a deep space platform. Just go to the radio page once you're there. So, again, strangeplanet.ca, and then uh, there's a radio page, and uh, click on the Conspiracy Show. And there you will find, um, in the slide carousel at the top, a remarkable expose published by the London Daily Mail about a mob hitman who says he was the man on the grassy knoll who killed JFK. And he's um, he's actually serving time in an Illinois uh, state prison. Uh, James Files is his name, and he insists he did it. He claims in the documentary, I Killed JFK, he was the man who killed President Kennedy. Uh, He was moved from a high-security jail to a less-secure one in Illinois, and he is preparing for his release next spring, after 36 years behind bars. And uh, James Files says he was standing on the grassy knoll in Dallas, Texas, November 22nd, and fired 
the fatal head wound that killed Kennedy. And he also claims Lee Harvey Oswald never fired a single shot and that his boss, Charles Chucky Nicoletti, was in the book depository. Further, he claims the CIA turned against Kennedy after the Bay of Pigs invasion and plotted with the mafia to kill the president. Uh, And and, um, I actually interviewed James Files' wife. Uh, Oh, maybe eight years ago, I'm thinking it might have been, maybe a little less, a little longer. Uh, That'll be interesting when James Files gets released, if, in fact, he gets released. Uh, that's, that's just one of the many stories you'll find up at the, um, uh, the website, strangeplanet.ca. And while you're there, while you're there at strangeplanet.ca, uh, you may want to register as a member, gain access to the member-only areas, which includes the audio archives. And you can go back and listen uh, to past shows. I think you can go back as far as the summer of 2012. All right. To the main entree we go. We are uh, fast approaching the 52nd anniversary of the assassination of the 35th president of the United States. And uh, we are joined by a gentleman who, it's been a while uh, since he's been with us. Chris Milligan is the organizer of an annual Oswald conference. We'll find out more about that. And he is the publisher of, uh, well, I think the... um, their uh, list of books has gone over, uh, it's up around 70 volumes now in print. Uh, Trinidad Books. Uh, and he's also the editor. This is, you know, anyone who listens to this program and similar programs really needs to have this book on their, uh, their, in their library, on their nightstand, Fleshing Out Skull and Bones, Investigations into America's Most Powerful Secret Society. Chris is also a musician. Uh, after first working in 1999 with author-investigative reporter Daniel Hopsiger in uh, producing uh, Barry and the Boys, the CIA, the Mob, and America's Secret History, Chris started Trinidad in 2000 as a vehicle to get suppressed books wider circulation. And as I mentioned, it has now grown to over 70 volumes in print and has succeeded in achieving a wider distribution for suppressed works. The current catalog can be viewed at Trinidad.com, T-R-I-N-E-D-A-Y.com. He's also edited and, as I mentioned, author of Fleshing Out Skull and Bones, a prolific songwriter, uh, and uh, the annual conference that is produced by Chris Milligan and Trinidad Books, uh, Lorian Fenton and Conscious Community Events, David Denton and the JFK Historical Group also participate in that, and also Judith Very Baker who was a mistress of Lee Harvey Oswald, has been on this program. She's going to host the third annual JFK Assassination Conference in Dallas, November 20, 21, 22, two and a half days of presentations, and Chris will be a part of that. Chris Milligan, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. It's been a very long time since you've been with me. My fault entirely. How are you? Well, uh, thank you very kindly. I'm, I'm doing fine, sir. And thank you for having me on. All right. Uh, first of all, uh, because it's been a while since you've been on, those not familiar with you, hopefully they're familiar with the book, which you edited, Fleshing Out Skull and Bones. Uh, but let's just dial it back to a conversation you had with your late father in the 1960s. Your father was with the Office of Strategic Services, the forerunner of the CIA. Uh, he had a, a conversation with you one evening, or maybe it was over the course of several evenings. I'm not sure. But tell us what he 
what he dropped on you, kind of a bomb, I'm guessing. Well, yes, and, and he had uh, gone into the CIA also, um, and uh, it was uh, 1969, uh, and he took me aside along with the, uh, he had a professor from Vanderbilt with him, and he looked at me and he said, the Vietnam War is about drugs. Uh, there's these secret societies. Uh, and then he said, and communism's all a sham. Uh, these same secret societies are behind it all. It's all a big game. And uh, at that time, I, I thought my dad was uh, nuts. And uh, uh, a little light bulb came on my head, and I thought he was having uh, the drug talk with me. It was late 60s. I was growing my hair long. Uh, and so I thought he was going to... Uh, um, you know, tell me to stop smoking pot. So I straightened up and was getting ready for him to do that, but he just uh, continued telling me all about his intelligence career from when he was uh, an 18-year-old uh, kid. And uh, uh, then he they told me that, that uh, he said that they, there was uh, Vietnam, they were playing out a loose scenario in Vietnam, uh, and then he started talking about uh, propaganda and psychological warfare, and it became very apparent that I had no idea of what he was talking about. It's interesting uh, you're on the program with me tonight, Chris. A couple of weeks ago, I had E. Howard Hunt's son, St. John Hunt, on the program, and he sort of got a similar talk. This was his father's uh, sort of deathbed confession. And he mm-hmm. kind of set him straight. Have you had any communication with, with St. John Hunt? Uh, yes, and, and actually we uh, met each other uh, as musicians um, uh, first. And uh, I, we, we, we had talked, and, and I knew about him. And I said, now, wait a minute, you're E. Howard Hunt's kid. Your, your book should be coming out from New York. And finally, when that didn't happen, I finally said okay to St. John, because I've um, printed one of his books, and then we just uh, recently published another one of his about his uh, mother's... Oh, Dorothy, uh, that you published death. that. Okay, yes. my, my apologies. I should have known that, yes. Well, and, and it's very interesting. We, we've had some talks um, about how, you know, it, it's very strange uh, growing up in a household of a uh, spy. Uh, because they don't, they don't talk about their work at the dinner table. Uh, matter of fact, they might even have to lie at the dinner table. Right, right. So it's it's uh, a very interesting upbringing. Well, w- did your father ever talk to you about Kennedy? Um, n- not really, not really. He uh, uh, he was a Kennedy supporter, and that was one reason. I mean, I had a hard time understanding because. Um, you know, he, he's just your dad. I, I knew he'd been involved with intelligence, not because before because he had talked to me, but because uh, my older brother and older sister, uh, we had talked about it because, I mean, we'd spent time overseas. Uh, I was born in D.C. and raised in Fairfax, and um, we had talked about it, but it hadn't been talked about. So it was... Uh, just, uh, I, I didn't know, I mean, why should I believe him? Who? I mean, he was just, you know, uh, I didn't think that he knew anything about all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when, after he died, and I, when I got to go through his papers, 
uh, I see that he did, and I, and I am studying him more now, working uh, on a book on him, and I come to find that he was working in psychological warfare uh, in World War II. And that is uh, the most significant part, because one thing that he started to do was he started to um, uh, talk to me about these things that, uh, you know, telling me that they're playing out a loose scenario in a war. I mean, how, how do you get your head around something like that? What does that mean, a loose scenario? A, a, a lose. In other words, they're, they're playing the war to lose. Oh, to lose. Okay. To lose. Right, right. And, you know, I mean, I, I had a hard time as a kid, as it, as it was, trying to, wait a minute, uh, war, you kill people, and there's rules? <laughs> right. Right. All right. Listen, Chris, we, uh, we're going to take a quick time out. When we come back, we'll, uh, uh, we'll talk about Kennedy and we'll talk about the Oswald Conference coming up and also Oswald's Days in New Orleans, which is a very interesting chapter leading up to November of uh, 63. Chris Milligan is the organizer of the annual Oswald Conference, and he'll also be at a very important JFK conference in Dallas, November 2020, 2021, uh, and much more awaits right here on the very one and only Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Please hang out with us. And welcome back. Great pleasure to have uh, Chris Milligan with us, editor of Fleshing Out Skull and Bones Investigations into America's Most Powerful Secret Society. His father was with the Office of Strategic Services in the Second World War. Uh, bureau chief, um, was it was it South Asia? Your father's posting, Chris. Uh, his last uh, covert uh, job with the CIA was branch chief head of uh, East Asia Analysis Office. Yes. Well, interesting connection, obviously, with Southeast Asia and uh, and and JFK. Um, and yet, he didn't talk to you about that when after he passed on, and you went through his papers. Did you find anything? Any interesting connections between your father's work and and um, possibly the 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 motive behind JFK's assassination? Well, uh, one of the things that I found out, and and he had spoken to me a little bit about, was uh, a meeting that he'd had in 1956 with a gentleman by the name of Ed Lansdale uh, in Vietnam, uh, which was one of the um, main impetus is for him uh, leaving uh, the CIA. And uh, they were having a picnic, um, but they told the world uh, they were having a battle. Um, and when I looked at my, uh, how I found out a lot about it, I asked my mother uh, how big Chiang Mai, Th- uh, Thailand was. And she had been with my father in 1956 in this trip where he'd been to Vietnam and Thailand. And she says, oh, the biggest thing in town was a church. She had a picture of it. And then my mother made an aside. She said, and that's when she stopped believing everything she read in the newspapers. And this kind of uh, picked up my ears because... uh, um, my mother had been a very good CIA wife. I'd ask her questions, and she'd say, oh, she didn't know anything. And so I uh, asked my mother, what did you mean? And she said, well, uh, they'd been in Vietnam, and then they'd gone over to uh, Thailand, to Bangkok, and then to Chiang Mai. And uh, 
she said there had been a story in the newspapers about this big battle in Vietnam, uh, right where they had been, but she said there had been no battle. Uh, they'd been having a picnic. And so I look at her picture book, and I look at Chiang Mai in the church, and I turn it back a few pages, and uh, there's my dad uh, sitting out talking uh, to uh, Colonel Lansdale, and uh, then there's this... Uh, beautiful picture of my mother. Uh, I ended up showing it to my other siblings, and it ended up being one of the main pictures in her memorial because she's just vivacious in it. And the caption to the picture off to the side, and you can see in this picture, you can see Lansdale, he's sitting down, and they're having a picnic, and there's these other people in camos and berets walking around. And it says, uh, Eudora, because that's my mother's name, it says, Eudora, out from Saigon, with Colonel Lansdale and North Vietnamese military leaders. North and, North Vietnam. I mean, Lansdale was was chief of CIA's Saigon military mission. He was there to to prop up Diem, right? Right, but uh, a lot of that had all been uh, uh, manipulated, um, and this had been right after uh, Lansdale had taken over the Golden Triangle from. Uh, French intelligence. Uh, the French had left uh, in 1954 after Diem Van Phu, however you say that. Yeah, but uh, they didn't leave the Golden Triangle. They stayed there, uh, French intelligence, along with some Corsican uh, mafia folks. And uh, Lansdale had asked them to leave, uh, and they said, well, no. Uh, and uh, there's a book, uh, actually, by Gerald Posner, The Triad. Uh, that talks about uh, this and says that this is one of the very few shooting wars between Western intelligence agencies. Um, basically, Lansdale went and got his own Corsican, Lucian Conan, and went up and took it over. This is a turf war for the heroin. Right. And, you see, one of the things, the other thing, that a uh, big thing that my father told me, he said they're out to opiate your whole generation. And uh, so... Uh, you have a picnic. You tell the world you're you're having a battle. Well, why do you do that? And if you look at the historical record, Ed Lansdale did fake battles in the Philippines, and a gentleman um, uh, Fletcher Prouty, Colonel Colonel Fletcher Prouty, says that he did fake battles in Vietnam. But you. Uh, and that's the Mr. That's the uh, the Mr. X character in in Oliver Stone's JFK, Fletcher Prouty. Right, and so he, um, you harden the signs because then the people in the villages uh, they've got to okay, who are you for? And so it hardens the sides, and pretty soon you have uh, you know American boys and girls going to hell for one year, and some Canadian boys and girls. Yes. And, uh, you know, they're going there for one year. After one year, they get to go home to their friends. Well, gosh, some of those boys and girls get addicted to the heroin that's being proffered to them by about anybody who's 12 years up, old and up. And, it's, you know, what does a, uh, sadly, what does a junkie do? A, a junkie sells junk. And so it, quote-unquote, contaminates the population in a widespread area starting in the uh, early 60s and um, it's uh, 
part and parcel of the psychological warfare uh, that the, the Kennedy hit was. Did your father ever talk to you, and I, I do want to move on to Oswald here in a moment, but did your father ever talk to you about the role of Air America uh, in, in getting the heroin out of the Golden Triangle? And also, and this is one of the most distasteful aspects of the whole war, and there are many, uh, but the idea or the theory, the rumor, that heroin was being smuggled out of, South, uh, out of Vietnam in the caskets containing dead U.S. servicemen. It's it's not a rumor, and it was actually stuffed into some into cadavers. Uh, and uh, I, I did a lot of research, and it's just amazing. Uh, and when you look at the numbers, um, officially they say that there's a, a million to a million two junkies in the United States. I, I personally think there's a few more. Uh, and if you uh, just uh, pencil that out as far as numbers. Uh, that's a ton a day. So it, it's it's a a lot of uh, activity uh, goes around, and this is one of the activities that then also creates huge big slush funds that allows these forces from out of the shadows to uh, affect our uh, daily life and our children's future. All right, Chris Milligan is uh, with us, fleshing out skull and bones. Uh, let's let's talk because. You know, here we are, 52nd anniversary of the JFK assassination. And um, first of all, tell us about the Oswald Conference. Uh, where well, and when? Where and when? Well, it it it, it happened in uh, New Orleans in October, uh, and we're going to have another one there last year. And actually, they started up there in Toronto uh, because Judith Barry Baker in her, her book, Me and Lee. Uh, when it first came out, she'd already had so many accidents and, and so many death threats that she'd moved to, to Europe. Uh, when her book came out, she wouldn't come to the United States. Uh, and finally, when her the soft cover of it came, I, I, I says, well, what about Toronto? Would you come to Toronto, to conspiracy culture there? And I, I says, Judy, when's, uh, it's going to come out. September, October, what is there a good date? And she says, well, Oswald's birthday is in October. And so we celebrated Oswald's birthday there at Conspiracy Culture uh, and brought her to, to uh, speak. Uh, we had a uh, great um, reception there. Uh, we got um, front-page news. She got on a whole bunch of radio and television. She was on the program, yes. It. Um, got over to the United States, uh, and this heartened uh, Judith. And um, because of that, uh, uh, we did her David Ferry book, because Judith, you know, knew David Ferry. Uh, and it's just, she is the first person witness. And so uh, we've been starting to have... Um, celebrate Oswald's birthday, which, you know, you're, you're supposed to hate this gentleman, right? He, he killed our beloved president, but he didn't. He was a patsy. And this has helped turn, turn around uh, the thinking of Oswald and, and who he is. And uh, Judith has been very much responsible with her first-person witness. And then we're doing a Dallas conference uh, because there are people uh, that will not allow... Judith to speak at, quote-unquote, their conferences. 
and generally at their conferences, they don't like people to talk about uh, LBJ's involvement. So uh, we're looking to have you know some honest discussion, and we've really uh, the the conference in in New Orleans was fantastic. Uh, we had uh, Joan Mellon there, Jim Mars, Judith Ferry Baker, uh, Ed Haslam, uh, Roger Stone. Uh, St. John Hunt, uh, Ed Tatro, uh, uh, other people doing some just amazing research. And, you know, if you look at the JFK, uh, there's a lot of, uh, quote-unquote, contentious, and, and there's a lot of things that people don't agree on. And uh, But it, it, there are two things that really uh, we pretty much do agree on, uh, at least the people that think that Oswald didn't do it is that Oswald you know didn't do it he was an intelligence operative and he was a patsy and the other thing is that it was a coup d'etat and those people are still in control today and uh, you know we need uh, I'm terrible I have an agenda some people think it's uh, kind of trite but uh, I, I, I want my country back. Some people say, well, back to what? <laughs> uh, uh, back to freedom, back to something that, that actually stands on our Constitution uh, and, and a constitutional republic rather than this uh, empire uh, that has a need for slaves and not uh, citizens. Let's, let's, uh, we're, we're coming up on a break here, but let's get the conversation rolling and we'll continue after the break. And uh, Let's talk about Oswald in New Orleans. In New Orleans, I mean, this ridiculous scenario of him uh, handing out pamphlets uh, for his committee of one, you know, fair play for Cuba, uh, didn't recruit a, a single individual to the cause, gets in fisticuffs with a number of uh, anti-Castro um, uh, Cuban exiles, uh, gets paraded before the media, you know, uh, talking about uh, his pro-Castro views. Um, I mean, what was that? What was that really all about? Well, it was about a couple of things. Uh, the main two things being uh, creating his legend, giving him some uh, pro Castro uh, bona, bona fides, and then uh, they would hand out uh, these uh, fair play for Cuba pamphlets, and uh, there would be people there uh, watching. And if the people actually kept them uh, and didn't just throw them away, uh, they would follow them. And if they were sometimes Latino people, uh, they would uh, then uh, get them arrested and uh, get them deported. Because they were, you know, searching for uh, uh, people that were sympathizers. So there was uh, two different uh, main uses for that action. And the other interesting aspect, well, there are many, but the, one of them is the the offices of his one-man Fair Play for Cuba committee, uh, which now Guy Bannister, we should talk about Guy Bannister and his <laughs> offices at 554 Camp Street in New Orleans and uh, the same building but a separate entrance. Oswald is using the same building you know, to, to print up his pamphlets. Uh, and there's some discussion whether he and Bannister, you know, ever met in the same building. The fact that they were they were both housed in the same building. We'll talk about that. The connection between a uh, guy Bannister and 
Lee Harvey Oswald, in New Orleans in the months leading up to the JFK assassination. Chris Milligan is with us from Trinidad Press, and uh, the book again is Fleshing Out Skull and Bones. If you don't have it, get it. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show right here. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Chris Milligan is with us, Trinidad Publishing, and uh, the author, or the editor, rather, of Fleshing Out Skull and Bones. His father was a, um, a member of the Office of Strategic Services, the forerunner of the CIA, later with the CIA, served in South Asia. And um, this, uh, uh, well, a, a, a conversation back in the late 1960s uh, with Chris and his father led Chris on this lifelong journey into investigating not only the JFK assassination, but, uh, well, just, I guess, the way the, the world really works. And um, we were talking about Oswald in New Orleans, July 1963, we mentioned uh, the connection with Guy Bannister, who, of course, Garrison, the New Orleans district attorney, uh, mentioned Bannister as being involved in the assassination of, of Kennedy. And it is interesting, Bannister, former FBI agent, was actually present at the killing of John Dillinger, caught the attention of uh, J. Edgar Hoover, and I believe headed up the FBI in Butte, Montana, uh, but was very a, a virulent anti-communist. And um, uh, he was stationed at 531 Lafayette on, in New Orleans, and and uh, Oswald's Fair Play for Cuba was at 554 Camp. But those two streets met, and so the it was the same building, different entrances. And uh, there's some you know discussion as to whether Oswald and Bannister supposedly would be on opposite sides, obviously, uh, but whether they were working together. And and Bannister's secretary. Uh, it was a Delphine Roberts, I think her name was. She maintains that uh, that Oswald did meet with Bannister. Uh, what are your thoughts on on uh, on Bannister and Oswald and a possible connection, Chris? Well, uh, Bannister, uh, according to uh, many sources, was still working uh, within the FBI and within the intelligence services, uh, especially on a couple, uh, several uh, secret projects. Uh, one uh, within the uh, uh, right-wing uh, militia community, another within a uh, secret project that was in uh, New Orleans that was uh, weaponizing cancer uh, to be used as a biological uh, weapon to uh, kill Castro. And uh, Judith Baker uh, gives uh, testimony of, of going into Bannister's office. Uh, she actually... Uh, uh, one time when she was there, she acquired a uh, uh, some of his sta- of his stationery, and um, Bannister is part and parcel of the milieu uh, that you have involved uh, in uh, the Kennedy assassination and other types of of secret secret projects. Uh, and what's very interesting in the, in the Kennedy assassination. Um, you have a lot of players that are uh, double and triple and, and, and quadruple agents. And um, in intelligence operations, these double and triple and quadruple agents, sometimes they don't even know who they're working for and generally don't know exactly what they're doing because that's the nature of intelligence operations. But they're very... Um, in, in, uh, I, valuable because uh, they get things done. Uh, they move back and forth. They, they uh, take uh, 
uh, information back and forth, and you have a situation uh, such as uh, the book that Dick Russell wrote, uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much, of a gentleman by the name of uh, Richard Case Nagel. Uh, and he knew something was going on. He didn't know exactly what, but he knew he didn't want to be involved. So he goes into a bank uh, the week before the Kennedy assassination and, and, and shoots a hole in the ceiling uh, so that uh, when the Kennedy assassination happens, uh, he's in jail. And uh, when you have uh, operations such as this, to, to find out who these double and triple and quadruple agents are and, and who they're talking to and how they're ta- who they're th- talking through, uh, they have things called shakedown cruises. Uh, and you had, most notably, you had one in Miami, uh, and you had one in Chicago. Uh, the one in Chicago uh, left a patsy in place, very similar to Lee Harvey Oswald. And uh, we have testimony from Abraham Bolden that uh, it was a gentleman by the name of Lee that gave him uh, the information about uh, that Chicago plot. He helped thwart the plot against Kennedy. Kennedy was supposed to be taken out in Chicago, and it was supposedly Oswald uh, who... Um who thwarted that plot. Uh, yeah, how do you square that with an Oswald who supposedly fires the fatal shots that kill the president? Uh, we will continue the conversation. Chris Milligan from Trinidad Publishing, the book Fleshing Out Skull and Bones, right here on The Conspiracy Show. No need to go anywhere else. We will open up the phone lines, and we will do an hour of open lines. Doesn't happen very often on the program, but tonight is the night. Open lines, uh, beginning at the top of the hour. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. Richard Serrett with you. Chris Milligan on the line, and uh, he, the editor of Fleshing Out Skull and Bones. Many of you will have this in your uh, library, and if not, I urge you to get it. Um, Chris is uh, going to be appearing at a very important JFK assassination uh, conference in Dallas, November 20, 21, and 22, and uh, many of the people uh, appearing uh, on stage and speaking have appeared on this show. Judith Very Baker, uh, Ed Haslam, uh, among them. You mentioned Ed, uh, You mentioned uh, the the cancer um, virus, Simeon Cancer Virus Forty, which supposedly was um, contained in the oral the live polio vaccine developed by uh, Dr. Salk and. And once they found out that, um, you know, they were giving millions of people a cancer, um, I guess Dr. Mary Sherman thought that she was brought on board to try and find the, uh, I guess, the antidote. Uh, what was, uh, and this was taking place in New Orleans. So what was Oswald, his role in that? Uh, what was his relationship with Dr. Mary Sherman? Uh, he, he seems to be a courier. Uh, in that operation, mostly, uh, he would, uh, you know, he, he showed up in uh, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, uh, possibly to pick up some uh, radiological uh, material. Uh, he went other places. He, he moved around uh, town there in New Orleans. Uh, he showed up at uh, Mary Sherman's apartment. Uh, and and also to Juan Valdez's apartment, which was uh, in the same apartment complex where they would uh, go into the restroom and just uh, uh, 
flush the toilet over and over and over again. And uh, this appears to be uh, getting rid of uh, these cancerous uh, tumors in uh, some of the uh, mice carcasses because uh, they had a secret lab uh, through David Ferry uh, because they had to break up uh, the different doctors in this uh, secret program, so everybody didn't know what everybody was doing. It, they had a, a lab that was out at a at a house, and so it, it appears that uh, Oswald was uh, mostly acting as a cur- courier, possibly as a little bit as security. Okay, and, and we and, should just sort of set the stage here very quickly. So we have uh, Judith Very Baker, who was doing remarkable things in high school with cancer and mice. We had Dr. Mary Sherman, who I, I guess sort of thought that she was brought on board to try and find an antidote for the uh, the simian uh, cancer virus that was contained in the polio vaccine. But at the same time, I guess she learned that that and perhaps Judy as well that they were really weaponizing this virus and that it was going to be used against Castro is that right have i uh, yes actually there there was a uh, decision made uh to weaponize it to uh use against Castro and both uh, Mary and Judy were aware of that and where Judy got herself in trouble was when she found out that uh they were using it on a prisoner and they were not telling the prisoner uh, uh, that he was getting a, a, a cancer virus and also that the prisoners were not already, uh, had al- already had a uh, uh, life-threatening cancer in them and were just healthy people. And when she complained that they were killing healthy people, uh, she was then thrown off the program, and that pretty much uh, saved her life because... Uh, her name changed from her maiden name to her married name, and uh, she was away from New Orleans because most everybody out, well, everybody else involved in that uh, experiment that we we know of and is known of publicly is uh, dead, and most of them murdered. Well, and uh, certainly uh, Dr. Mary Sherman, uh, one of them, met a, a grisly end. Um, was Oswald supposed to deliver this cancer virus to uh, take out Castro? Is that why he went down to Mexico to try to get uh, into Cuba? Uh, that's what the testimony is of uh, Judith Ferry Baker, uh, which is the first-person testimony. Uh, and he wasn't going to take it to Cuba himself, but he was going to hand it off uh, to somebody that was going to take it on uh, to Cuba. And there has been quite a bit of, you know, discussion whether he uh, had, had gone to Mexico. And it's been pretty much uh, shown uh, that he uh, did go. And, yes, the the Oswald Conference, uh, there are videos of it, some excellent presentations uh, from our researchers uh, at oswaldconference.com. And then uh, the uh, upcoming conference is a, a very simple jfkconference.com. Uh, uh, and uh, people can check it out and, and see the speakers. We're also going to have uh, Peter Dale Scott, um, and also going to have a, a very interesting presentation by Fernando Ferrara, who was a uh, reporter on the ground uh, when RFK was assassinated, because uh, the day the conference starts, 1120, is actually Robert Kennedy's birthday. 
and he did a lot of research about the girl with the polka dot dress. Ah, yes. Who officially still doesn't exist, but <laughs> he begs to differ. Yes, she's the one that presented Sirhan Sirhan with the the big uh, carafe of coffee and uh, perhaps containing rohypnol. We don't know what was in that uh, coffee, but uh, and that was all she wrote for poor Sirhan Sirhan, who continues to languish in a, in a prison. And says that he went. He was under mind control today. Uh, he he uh, Sirhan says that today. Yes, it's a. Uh, uh, a wild world, and again, it, it goes back to a psychological warfare and goes back to what my father, uh, these uh, secret societies. How these secret societies control the world is a leviathan of, of, of three levels, and each level has three parts. Top level is mining, metal, and money, and they hold that real tight. Uh, next is a very active uh, thing, uh, use the theater of war a lot. Uh, it's drugs, uh, guns, and, and oil, which also includes allopathic medicine. And uh, then and they use all the funds from that to buy up all the other industries. And then where this Leviathan meets the road is, is media and uh, movies slash music. And they have to control that. And then, quote-unquote, magic, the ability to hoodwink us and their preponderance in using mass trauma uh, to scare the heck out of us. And, and, and put us into shock. And uh, that's what uh, the JFK uh, assassination at its core was. It's uh, the occult ritual of the killing of the king. Uh, and for, for, for my money, uh, your crew is uh, Hoover and LBJ, and they're low men on the totem pole. You, you, they're so blackmailable, uh, you have them in your pocket. Uh, then you have Alan Dulles, and uh, he's a lawyer. And who's he? Law- he's a lawyer for well, the Bush family, and it was George H. W. Bush and Nelson Rockefeller. Uh, you had uh, Hoover writing a letter uh, the day after the assassination that mentions uh, George Bush of the CIA, and he's covering his 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 fanny uh, there, and. Uh, uh, because the shock that the country went into, and we've, we've never been the same country since. Uh, the percentage of the population that believes in its, in its government, uh, believes in you know, what America is about, uh, drastically changed. Uh, I mean, you have, uh, and, and Judith Mary Baker, have a huge task in trying to sort of rehabilitate I guess the image of of Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, although you know the polls suggest that um, if he was involved, he certainly didn't act alone. And the uh, the uh, the joint uh, committee on on assassinations in um, was that 1978 uh, mm-hmm. suggested also there was a, a also a conspiracy. Here we just have a few minutes uh, remaining, but let me throw this out at you. Uh, and and this speaks, I guess, to Judith Very Baker's relationship with Lee Harvey Oswald. And the question is, because it has been speculated widely, you know, that the Oswald that came back from Russia was not the Oswald, uh, you know, that uh, that went to Russia and so forth. That there were doubles. That there were maybe numerous Lee Harvey Oswalds. Is it possible uh, that G- that that Judith Very Baker? met one Oswald, but it wasn't the Oswald. What do you think of that? What do you think of the whole Oswald double uh, theory? Um, 
I, I, I don't know. I do know that there was something within uh, the CIA called the Oswald Project, uh, and they were talking to that about uh, when he was in uh, Russia. Um, a, a lot of uh, what is presented as evidence uh, can be shown to be uh, uh, playing with um, photographs. And I'm sure that there uh, were imposters uh, that were used to um, uh, play Oswald at times. But whether there's these two uh, big, long narratives of a Lee Harvey and a Harvey Lee, I, uh, that a lot has been shown to me to be spacious. All right. So I, I, I don't really... Uh, believe that it's shown to me by by quite a few different people coming from different angles. Uh, but I, I, I do believe that there uh, uh, Oswald was used uh, as an intelligence legend, and he was a patsy. Now, and he, I do believe that he, that was a true Lee Harvey Oswald that was born in New Orleans at Judith Ferry Baker. All right. Now, now. Uh, you know, Judy's insistent that Oswald was a fan of Kennedy, which is kind of interesting because, you know, obviously much of the intelligence apparatus in the United States at the time, people in the OSS, E. Howard Hunt certainly had no love for Kennedy. He wasn't alone in that. They were, let's, let's face it, people were lining up to take a shot, a shot at the president. Uh, the sacrificial lamb sort of wandered into this national security state and... Um, so I, I just find it interesting, you know, Oswald was anti-Castro, uh, and yet we had Kennedy, some s- said he was appease, trying to appease Castro. Why would Oswald have been a fan of John F. Kennedy? Well, the, the Warren Commission, you know, the anti-Castro was just part of a legend, and the Warren Commission uh, even uh, showed that uh, Kennedy, that Oswald was a fan uh, of Kennedy, they couldn't uh, use that as a motive that that he hated Kennedy, uh, and uh, he, you know again when when you're an intelligence operative, operative, uh, you say and do many things uh, to uh, create your legend, and the story that Judy and the story that Ed Haslam uh, tells and other people talk about is that. Now, when Oswald came back from the uh, Russia, uh, when he had to get his paper signed to say, okay, you can come back, uh, that had to go on up, and one of the offices that would have had to sign that would have been the office of the Attorney General. And there's quite a bit of, in, of uh, information to show that uh, as an intelligence operative, one of the uh, op- uh, operations that Oswald was doing was working out of the Attorney General's office uh, because uh, they had uh, were trying to shut down the anti-Castro sites, and uh, little after time after Oswald visited one in Louisiana, it was shut down. All right, Chris. Unfortunately, we are out of time. So much more to discuss. We'll have to leave it here for now. Thank you so much uh, for being with us. Give us a website. Trineday.com, JFKConference.com, and thank you. So my, much. my pleasure. Tryingday.com. All right, the website here, strangeplanet.ca. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. As always, follow the truth. Well, thank you for inviting me into your home, your long haul truck, your camper, RV, taxi cab, that greasy spoon diner on Main Street, or perhaps your cabin in the woods. 
A special hello uh, to those of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740, 96.7 FM here in Toronto. A hearty how-do to all of you listening in on the Zoomer Radio app uh, and the Conspiracy Show app, both of those free downloads. And um, the podcast, of course, on iTunes, Stitcher uh, Radio, TuneIn.com, and TalkZone.com. And, of course, a warm welcome uh, to all of you listening in on one of our growing list of affiliates in the United States. Welcome, welcome, welcome to each and every one of you. This is The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. A delight to be with you. Wow, uh, so much going on. And uh, least, uh, certainly not least, the uh, horrible, horrible massacre, slaughter uh, in Paris. Uh, we're around 130 dead, and that, unfortunately, that number likely to climb because 300 injured, and many of those uh, gravely injured, critically injured. Uh, and interesting, what has been sort of forgotten, sadly, in all of this, yes, our mind is uh, right now with, uh, uh, with Paris, the people of Paris, France, as it should be, And yes, the media has been focusing on this, but what has been sort of forgotten is uh, a suicide bombing in in Beirut, in South Beirut, uh, which killed dozens. I think uh, the number is up to 43. And ISIS, of course, has claimed responsibility for that as well. This happened on Thursday, the day before the massacre in Paris. And uh, just... uh, glass and blood on the streets everywhere. So I want to say that, yes, we stand with the people of Paris, but also we stand with the people of Beirut. And if you'd like to talk about that, what's been going on, we will make the phone lines available to you. We are going to go open lines, pillar to post, for the hour. And uh, let me give you the number numbers right now because they're, they're always kind of handy when you do a talk show. Phone numbers. It'll be just you, me, and the telephone. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740. And then we have this wonderful out-of-town toll-free number, which is good for just about anywhere, one 740 4740-866-740-4740. And once again, here in Toronto, 416-360-0740. And our concierge, Ian Robertson, will be happy to take your call. Now, uh, we can talk about that. And I'm just, you know, I'm not going to say a whole lot. I want you just to speak your mind. And I will offer a comment here or there where appropriate. But now is a time really just to let you say your piece because these events are so fresh and so raw. Um, The other thing, of course, we can talk about, and we can talk about just about anything, keeping in mind this is a program that discusses uh, conspiracies, the paranormal. Uh, But recently we talked with Chris Milligan from Trying Day publications, and uh, he is the editor of a real, uh, it's a seminal work, really, uh, Fleshing Out Skull and Bones. 
Uh, and he was on to talk about uh, the JFK assassination. And here we are, fast approaching the 52nd anniversary. So if there's some aspect of that that you want to talk about, we certainly can. Uh but I thought what we could do right now, while we are waiting for the phone lines to light up, and they will, and they are, I can see them now, uh, let me uh, bring in Albert Vinzel, my trusty story producer. And uh, we don't hear from Albert very often. We try to work him in when we can. And uh, he's a hardworking young man, and it's always uh, great when we can bring him on and uh, dip into the mailbag as we do from time to time. Albert, how are you? Great. Thanks, Richard. <laughs> Uh, let me, um, let me ask you, uh, to, uh, dip into the, uh, mailbag quickly. We have, uh, I understand, someone actually sent a letter or they emailed. It, it's email, but it, uh, we printed it out. All right. They must have been re- listening to the Resonance show, but I, I'll just read it straight from the top. Uh, Richard, if UFOs exist, why don't their occupants land at high noon on the grounds of, on the grounds of Parliament in Ottawa? at the CN Tower in Toronto, Times Square in New York, or Hart Plaza in Detroit, and state their peaceful intentions. Why do they always seem to appear at night in remote areas to people who have difficulty verifying their claims? I've been in the newspaper business for 42 years, and I have dealt consistently in hard information. Thus far, I remain unconvinced. Call me a skeptic. As far as I know, there has been only one person not of this world, and they crucified him. Always enjoy the program. Jim from Port Huron, Michigan. All right. Well, Jim, uh, excellent letter, excellent question, and I, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, that's always the big question. You know, Why don't they land on the White House lawn if, in fact, they, are, they have our best interests in mind? Why don't they announce their presence to the world? And you mentioned uh, that you wondered if Jim was was listening to a recent program. Was it last week? We had uh, Dr. Lana Marconi on, and uh, she's a documentary filmmaker. Her film is called The Resonance. And in that film, she features some pretty prominent UFO- ufologists, Dr. Stanton Friedman, uh, the Honorable Paul Hellyer, our very own Victor Vigiani, Patty Greer, uh, Grant Cameron from uh, presidentialufos.com, many, many more. And uh, she actually mentioned in that interview that uh, that she gets that question and she I, – uh, I don't want to be unkind. She thinks that's a really dumb question basically <laughs> because uh, – well, she approaches the whole UFO phenomenon from an entirely – well, it's not it's, – it's a fairly common perspective. It's the prevailing uh, perspective I think in the UFO community. And that is that we, what, when we are talking about ETs, we are talking about some in spiritually evolved being uh, that is here, uh, sort of, you know, coming to our rescue like the cavalry, uh, and that they're not going to uh, appear on the White House lawn because they don't believe that the the, the occupant of the White House or uh, the occupant in, uh, in in Red Square or Cap- Parliament Hill that they speak for all seven billion of us or seven and a half billion of us, uh, and that perhaps you know they exist in a different at a different uh, vibration frequency uh, frequency and so forth. Uh, which is why some people see them and some people don't, and why they seem to flit in and out of uh, reality and so forth. Uh, however, Jim, I, I subscribe, and I think I understand where you're going in your letter. I subscribe to your 
perspective. I don't think they are here. And this is not popular with the UFO crowd. Uh, but this is my, my opinion. This is my perspective. Love it or lump it. I don't believe that ETs, most of them, are here to save us from ourselves. I don't think they are extraterrestrials in the sense that they come from another planet. I think they are interdimensionals. And uh, quite possibly satanic or demonic, rather demonic. Some of them may be angelic. Um, there certainly is a long history of interactions between those from the angelic realm uh, and uh, we humans. And if you look at the, again, I come back to the, the, uh, the abduction phenomenon. You cannot simply ignore it. The, the absolutely venal, grotesque, abduction of human beings, the, uh, the torturous experimentation performed, if you believe that these, uh, these abductions are real. You simply can't explain that away. Uh, I, I, I don't believe. Uh, or argue that, well, the people that, that, have, that this happens to uh, in some former life uh, agreed to this, uh, as one explanation um, has been given. I don't believe that. I don't buy into that. It does not square with, I believe, the biblical narrative. It doesn't. Well, it does in one way. <laughs> um, again, and I come back to the the, the whole aspect of the um, the demonic realm or the angelic realm, uh, and uh, I believe, by and large, we are being visited upon by fallen angels. That's my explanation of the UFO ET phenomenon, and that's not a popular one, and but I stand by it, and will continue to. Uh, thank you for the email, Jim, in, was it Port Huron, Albert? Port Huron. All right. Uh, we have a time. Let's go to the phones. Uh, do we have another letter? Uh, Did you have something else there? It's, it's from one of the publishers. He, he, uh, he says he uh, has a new book out entitled Victory Over the Kingdom of Darkness. And he'll send you the review copy. Excellent. All right. And, uh, and, uh, that's... Okay. Well, you get on that, Albert. I'll let you get back to work. Albert Vinzel uh, dips into the mailbag. All right. Well, here we go with the, uh, the music percolating up. That means we will take a quick time out. When we come back, we have uh, people waiting on the lines, and we will get to them. Open lines now until we dim the lights and say good night, good morning here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard. I bid you welcome... And we'll be back shortly. All right. Uh, welcome back. Open lines now until the top of the hour. This uh, doesn't happen very often, but we are doing it tonight. So get on board. And uh, I mentioned before the break, we had an email from Jim in Port Huron regarding UFOs. And I mentioned um, an interview I did last week with uh, Dr. Lana Marconi, documentary filmmaker. And I just want to mention, take the opportunity. Uh, her movie is called The Resonance. And uh, I'm going to be. I've, I've been asked, and I'm honored to uh, to, to have been asked uh, to be the official MC of the official of the uh, the debut screening, which is happening Saturday, November the 21st. Saturday, November the 24th. First, uh, this is the official screening of the Resonance at the JJR McLeod Auditorium. And that's at the University of Toronto campus, uh, One King's College Circle. And uh, tickets are $25 per person. Uh, it includes the premiere screening of the movie, plus a live Q&A 
with uh, there's really quite a, a, an impressive lineup of speakers, which include the Honorable Paul Hellyer, uh, um, um, Victor Vigiani, uh, Patty Greer, many, many others. I think there's about 14 people that are featured in the film that will be up on stage. And then after the screening, I'm going to be sort of facilitating a Q&A as well. And just go to drlana.com. D-R and then Lana, L-A-N-A dot com, DrLana.com. And again, the film is The Resonance. And uh, a, uh, a real who's who of ufologists will be there. And, and as I said, listen, I don't necessarily subscribe uh, to um, sort of the main thread or theme of the film about, uh, you know, how we need to prepare ourselves uh, for communion with E.T. and how this is going to be a positive uh, outcome and so forth. I see it in an entirely different light, Uh, but that's all right. All right, let's go to the phones. Larry is in Toronto. Larry, good evening, good morning. Welcome to to, uh, The Conspiracy Show. How are you? How are you? Very well. I understand that you're writing a a biography about Lee Harvey Oswald. Is that true? Yes, I've been working on it for quite a while. Uh been researching quite a while, and during the course of my research, I've spoken and tracked down different people. If I can get you to speak into the phone, you're you're sounding very far away, Larry. Oh, there yeah. we are. Excellent. Now you're with good? us. Yes, much better. Okay. Have you interviewed Marina? Yes, yes. I've spoken to her uh, on a number of occasions, a couple of times. Hello? Yes, listening, oh. yes. Also, uh, I spoke to Robert Oswald, Lee's brother, right, four times, and that's uh, a, a very interesting story with him. But generally speaking, um, over the years, I've contacted different people in the assassination community, such as the late Jack White of uh, Fort Worth. Jack White, as you know, he's done some of the uh, specialists on the backyard photographs. Right, right. And uh, a recent, in a recent old, study at uh, a 3D uh, study, I think it was at a Dartmouth University, has confirmed that those photographs with Oswald with the murder weapon, uh, so, so-called murder weapon, at least the the man liquor Carcano, uh, and communist literature, you know, it's been long suggested that, that th- those photos were doctored and it was someone else's head placed on Oswald's body. Uh, those photographs are legitimate, according to this study. Now that you know that that's really you know doesn't prove or disprove anything in terms of Oswald's involvement. Where are you coming at this, uh, Larry? What is your research leading you uh, in terms of Oswald's involvement? Well, I'm taking attack. Uh, I'm looking at it. Most people try to uh, fit Oswald into their own. Uh, personal uh, scenario as far as uh, whether the mafia did it, the CIA did it. You know what I'm saying? Sure. No, everybody so has they, everybody yeah, has a, like, well, an opinion. Well, I think the mafia did it, so I'm going to try to like uh, put them in there. And other people, CIA or ca- whatever the case may be. My take on it is he was. It's a simple case of him being charged with a uh, crime, murder, and. Uh, I'm looking at it as simply a murder case whereby either he's innocent or he's guilty. I'm not trying to put him in any uh, slot. I'm looking at the evidence to prove him innocent. All right. That's my take. 
I can I'll give you an example right now that kind of blew late Harold Weisberg's mind. If you're familiar, if you're or your listeners are familiar with assassination story, Lee Oswald, after leaving uh, the book depository at 12:30, he allegedly went home to his home in Oak Cliff. You know, put on a jacket, got his pistol, then made his way to uh, Tenson Patton, shot Tippett, and then was arrested in the Texas Sierra about a half hour later. All right. That's the story. There's only one flaw with it. Every person, every single person who was a witness to the Tippett murder said the man was wearing a jacket, like a windbreaker jacket. And sure enough, the police along the escape route of the guy who killed Tippett, found a jacket put underneath, thrown in her car. Hmm. Okay? And according to some eyewitness accounts, uh, there was more than one person involved. Right. But the thing is the jacket. Okay. It's the FBI director, Jader Hoover, did a study in all of Oswald's clothes, and they were brought, everything he owned was brought to the Warren Commission, shown to Marina, and she went through the clothing. And he owned two jackets, okay? And we verified this even from the FBI. He owned two jackets. One was a dark blue heavyweight jacket. The other was a light gray, uh, what they called an Eisenhower jacket. So the story is that Oswald, as I said, went home, put on his gray jacket, and shot Tippett a half hour later. There's only one problem. Lee Oswald was a two-jacket suspect, and we're dealing with a three-jacket story, because when Oswald left the book depository, he didn't have a jacket to put on, and that's why he was arrested only Ah, wearing a shirt. Right, right. Why? Because Marina Oswald, in her testimony, as well as Wesley Buell Fraser, in his testimony, he drove Oswald home to Marina's house on Friday evening, or on Thursday evening, the evening before the assassination. When Oswald arrived Thursday night, he was wearing his gray windbreaker jacket. And a couple of the people at the book depository said he always came to work in that same gray jacket. So he comes home to Irving, uh, excuse me, to, to Irving, yes, on Thursday evening, wearing a gray jacket, his one gray jacket. The following morning, Marina said, you know, Lee, it's going to be cold. You better put on your heavyweight jacket. And that's exactly what he did. So he goes back to the book. He goes from Irving back to work in the morning, on Friday morning, in his blue jacket. His gray jacket he wore to Irving the night before. He leaves in his blue jacket to go on Friday morning to the Texas School Book Depository, and now he doesn't have a jacket to put on. Hmm. So he got two. Interesting. Understand? Yeah, yeah. No, the, I mean the whole the whole JD Tippett thing is very odd. And then there are the you know, here's a guy that supposedly you know kills a, a police officer, uh, and then instead of fleeing the scene immediately, he deliberately stops and discards four rather vital pieces of evidence. And that would be the the you know he opens the chamber of his gun, manually ejects the cases, leaves them on the ground. That's kind of a strange um, uh, thread in this well, story as both well. Both cases were marked uh, that they were uh, they were marked uh, that they were automatics, automatic uh, uh, 
automatic shell casings. Mm-hmm. And Oswald didn't have an automatic gun. So the shell casings wouldn't know that they found at the scene wouldn't have fit, uh, weren't compatible with his gun. He had a cylinder type of gun. Okay, my my understanding was, and you would you're researching this. But my understanding was that they did match the, the, the Oswald's rifle, but they or Oswald's pistol, but they didn't match the bullets in the body. Well, that's a whole contentious issue. Yeah, there are a lot of them, uh, aren't there? There are a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know. Uh, over the last few years, not real necessarily related to the JFK assassination, but, I mean, I've just read stories recently in the last five, ten years in in the Toronto Star where the FBI is accused of fabricating evidence in cases. I mean, you've come across those articles as well. Yeah, no doubt. Well, it wouldn't be the first time the FBI have been accused of manipulating it. Larry, listen, when uh, when is this book due to be published? Well... Uh, I'm I'm kind of retired now, so I'm working on it. I'm not in a right you know a rush type of thing. Right. But uh, I want to get it good. You know what I mean. I want to. I'm hoping within a year or so. Well, let's let's stay in touch, and when you get that published, I'll have you on the program, and we'll do we'll do an hour on it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, how would I get in touch with you if I want to send you something before that? Let's say. Just go through the website strangeplanet.ca. Oh, okay. And there's a contact page there. Okay, good enough. Larry, a pleasure. Nice Thank you. Nice talking to you. I don't want to keep you. I appreciate the call. All right, we'll look forward to the uh, the uh, biography on Lee Harvey Oswald. All right, let's go to uh, Hunter in Brantford, my hometown, the Bell, the Telephone City. Hunter, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good morning. Hey, Richard. Um, just wanted to give you uh, congratulations on your... Uh success in the United States, your popularity. I, I understand a lot of people really enjoy it when you're on the radio down there. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you, Hunter. Yeah, um, listen, I, um, I'm calling because uh, I heard something, oh, I think it was, I don't know if it was Friday night or Saturday morning, um, about the, uh, it came out of the uh, Republican uh, cat fight they're having down there for their leader. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, they uh, uh, put the blame on what's going on in the world um, right now on uh, the current uh, democratic government. and um, Well, that's what opposition parties do, right? They well, try to hang everything it really, on. That really turned my, uh, uh, make, made my hair stand up on the back of my neck. Um, the next part of what I'm going to say, I'm, I'm directing towards the people in the United States, and even though they might say, you know, it's none of our business up here, I'm, I'm just calling as a concerned citizen of the world that... Um, when they go to the polls, they need to remember who is in uh, who is in power when uh, Iraq was disseminated. It was it was an illegal war. The uh, the UN had de- determined that it was illegal, and uh, they went ahead and did it anyways. And they let they left the power vacuum in there. That's that's creating all these problems now. Well, to be fair, you're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, the the entire uh, first Gulf War, Iraq War, was predicated on a delusion, uh, two of them really. One was that 
uh, Saddam Hussein was had a connection with al-Qaeda because Mohammed Atta, the supposed uh, chief hijacker, had met with Iraqi security officials in Prague in April of 2001. Uh, they kept repeating that lie, and that was the link. That was the connecting the dots between Saddam Hussein and al-Qaeda. Well, we know from the, the, the police in, Czech, in the Czech Republic, well, it was Czechoslovakia at that time, that meeting never took place. We know from the CIA that meeting never took place, and even after that that lie was uh, sort of laid bare. They continued, and I say they, Dick Cheney and others, continued to – that's called uh, repetitive affirmation, right? It's right out of the propaganda handbook. You repeat the lie long enough and people believe it. The second delusion was that Saddam Hussein was building nuclear weapons. Uh, and, of course, we know that completely fell apart and, uh, and uh, the Secretary of State – uh, Colin Powell was the one that was sort of pressed into service to deliver this lie to the UN uh, General Assembly, or the Security Council, rather. Now, um, so yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. But um, to be fair, the, um, the 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 front runner in the Republican um, race for president or for the nomination, Donald Trump, has talked repeatedly how he, in 2004, said it was a bad idea, and he has blamed George Bush. Here's the thing. The current crop of Republicans have very little in common uh, you know, with, the, with the Bush. They're running against the Bush dynasty. So I think, you know, I think we have to put that on the record. Well, uh, current uh, popular opinion down there is that it's going to be a, a Jeb Bush-Hillary, uh, you know, not a chance. Run for the wire, and not, um, not a chance. If uh, if that does happen, I like I, I just want to repeat to the people of the United States, um, you know, and I'll admit that um, you know their fight is uh, is our, um, you know, we're going to reap what they uh, they have to fight for because I mean we don't have any delusions uh, up here that you know that they. Um, what they do doesn't affect us. It, it does in, in so many ways. Um, you know, the whole world depends on the United States and their power. Well, let's not forget, we were involved. We were involved in that Gulf War. We were bombing, retreating Iraqi soldiers as they withdrew from Kuwait. That's a sorry chapter in our own history. We are implicated in this, all right? Yeah, yeah, I know, but, uh, you know, I'm just talking about the, the hood ornament on the front of the tank, right? So... Uh, I, I got some other things to talk about. I'm going to let your other people get on, and uh, I'll talk to you again, Richard. Thanks I hope you do, time. Hunter. It was great to hear from you. Uh, and um, uh, say hello to everyone in my hometown, Brantford. <laughs> Take care, bud. All right, my friend. Okay, uh, do we have time for another call here? No, I'm getting the, uh, the, the head shake from young Ian Robertson. We will uh, we'll get to some more calls, though, when we come back. If you have a line, hold on to it. If you don't, get on board, 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740 in the greater Toronto area, toll-free from just about anywhere, and I mean anywhere, 1-866-740-4740. All right, welcome back. The lines are uh, going. If you've got a line, hold on to it. We'll get to you shortly. This is, I, I have to be honest, I just find this so rich. Uh, France, of, of course, still reeling from this uh, horrible massacre. Uh, they are still planning to go ahead with the uh, Global Climate Change Summit in Paris at the end of the month. Our newly uh, minted Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, of course, uh, 
has made this a priority. This is interesting. You know, we are and I say this, obviously, um, I want to be careful, but, you know, the, the, the French president, Hollande, has said this. His country now is at war. And I think I think we're all headed in that direction. I think this will be our generation's next war against radical jihadists, radical Islam. And uh, I, I also want to be careful. I mean, a, a great number of, of, of moderate, reasonable Muslims and organizations coming forward condemning this. And I'm, and I'm quite pleased that they've done this. Um, but there is an element out there, and it is radical Islam. The president of the United States won't say it, but it has to be said. This is, this is what is staring us in the face. And not wanting to scaremonger, but let's be realistic. Why do we think we are immune in this country from what just transpired in Paris and Lebanon? There's no reason, no reason to suggest it's not going to happen here. I pray that it doesn't, but we need to be prepared. So this is soon to be our war as well. And I find the priorities of the liberal government here uh, to be, quite frankly, to be asinine. Their priorities are global climate change and the resettling of 25,000 Syrian refugees. Something needs to be done for the Syrian refugees. It needs to be done in Syria. We need to stabilize that situation there. And Bashir al-Assad is not Lily White, but he's the best we've got over there. And rather than playing these silly games and trying to use Syria as a chess piece on the chess board and trying to isolate him because of his alliances with Iran, for now we need to, to come to grips with the fact that he is the best possible leader in that region. And if we think we're going to bomb Syria into the Stone Age and suddenly Thomas Jefferson is going to arise there and we're going to bomb Libya into the Stone Age and some great Democrat is going to arise there, we're kidding ourselves. Assad is about the best you're going to get in that region. And for now, we need to stabilize that. You're not going... How are you going to help the people of Syria by choosing sides in that civil war, dropping bombs, uh, where do you expect, how do you expect the people of Syria to react? Of course they're going to leave. If you want to stem the flow of refugees, let's stabilize the situation. Let's, let's get on board with Assad for now. We can deal with him later. But the idea that the, the, as we stand on the precipice of war, that our priority should be climate change, and then there are those actually making the case, and the uh, the most recent demo democratic debate, that climate change and ISIS are inextricably linked. That is so rich, I can't even begin to tell you. Climate change and terror are linked. 
The global desire or the, the desire for a global caliphate goes back over a thousand years. And to suggest that, oh, the fact that there was a serious drought in Syria the summer before the civil war there started is no coincidence. If you believe that, I've got some prime swampland in the Florida Keys for you. Absolutely embarrassing that they would even try to make that connection. All right, uh, our good friend, media scientist Nelson Thal joins us. Nelson, welcome, my friend. How are you? Yeah, good evening. Uh, thanks for having me, Richard. How's everything going at your end? Well, uh, I don't know. Let me let me ask you. Uh, when I mentioned uh, just a few moments ago that yeah. you know Hollande and France have said they are now at war, right? I think that we're being naive to suggest or to think that that uh, this isn't going to be all our war uh, very soon. What do, you, what do you think of that? Am I being uh, alarmist here? No, I, th- I think that we know biblically that, uh, that uh, th- they're trying to get the kings of the earth, are trying to get the armies together and uh, uh, get ready for Armageddon and get them over there. So we've got the Russians are there. I'm sure the Chinese are not far. I mean, the, you can see how this episode just this last week uh, is definitely going to bring the King of the North together and and get the armies together to go to war there, and so eventually we know they're going to surround Jerusalem. So uh, I, def- I totally agree. I think that uh, th- th- this is a, a, a this is a major a major uh, point at which things are going to change and, and accelerate as far as what's going on in Europe. Yeah, I uh, I hate to say it, but we are only seeing the very beginning. You know, the um, in the book of Daniel, it talks about how at this end time, the king of the south, meaning an, uh, a caliphate south of Jerusalem, will push at the king of the north, and the king of the north will respond and uh, attack the king of the south and overflow it, and then move into the Holy Land. And certainly this is uh, seems to be... Uh, one of the stepping stones to making that happen. And the interesting, other interesting prophecy talking about the destruction of Damascus, which is happening right now. And of course, this goes back, we were going to talk about, we're coming up to the anniversary of November 22nd once again. We've done shows with the Mamlucker Carcano in the studio, and we've done Kennedy shows now uh, since the since the late 70s. And the coup d'etat that took over in 63 has been very successful and still rules America. Listen, Nelson, we're coming up on a break. Hold on. We'll uh, come back and uh, discuss further. And also, if you've got a line, hold on to it. Earl in Oakville and others, we will get to your call. Delighted to do so. Open lines on The Conspiracy Show now until the top of the hour. Stay with us. All right. uh, Welcome back. Next week on the program, just a programming note... Canadian JFK assassination researcher Brent Holland will be uh, on the program. And also uh, the return of uh, hypnotherapist extraordinaire uh, Debbie Papadakis will be uh, with us. And then in two weeks' time, in two weeks' time, we're very happy to announce that uh, Graham Hancock uh, will be uh, on the program in uh, in, uh, advance of his... um, uh, conference here in Toronto put on by our good friends Patrick and Kadena at Conspiracy Culture. Graham, Graham Hancock will be coming to town, I believe the date is December the 13th. 
Uh, he'll be on this program in two weeks' time. Uh, but go to conspiracyculture.com and, cl- and click on their live events page to find out how to uh, attend the Graham Hancock uh, um, event. Uh, Nelson Thal, our media scientist friend and a JFK assassination researcher uh, himself, is with us. And you wanted to talk about uh, November 22nd, a coup d'etat, uh, and how that resonates to, to, to this day, Nelson. Well, it was Penn Jones who I started working with and studying with in the late 60s, early 70s, and he always directed us to the book by Edward Lutwak called Coup d'etat and pointed out that this was a major coup. And certainly to this day, the people who carried out that coup and their ilk still are in control of America. And that's quite a feat. Uh, They must celebrate every November 22nd the fact that they're still able to rule America and keep control and take over the White House and nothing's changed. They still have control of the White House. Obama's all CIA. All the different books about him show he was CIA. And, of course, CIA was controlled by uh, Reinhard Galen and and, uh, Walter Dornberger. And uh, that's all through the Nazi connection to the JFK assassination written by May Brussel. Well, and and that national security state was really in place even before Kennedy took office. So he sort of wandered into the lion's den, really not yeah. knowing, uh, you know, he was, I mean, he really sealed his own fate. I mean, he he had toured Southeast Asia, the, the developing world as a young senator and had, you know, uh, really become a critic of, of U.S. foreign policy, the use of the CIA as a mercenary force for, you know, the United Fruit Company and so forth in Central America and overthrowing democratically elected leaders. Uh, and here comes this – he wasn't exactly a dove. I think, you know, uh, uh, you know he, as he proved with Khrushchev, he was willing to stand up. But, but for Kennedy to walk into the White House surrounded by the Dulles brothers uh, and this – it was. It was a national security state. Uh, yeah. It doesn't matter who the occupant of the White House was at that time. Um, step out of line, Republican or Democrat, you had you, that was a nail in your coffin. Yeah, that's you couldn't have put it better. That's exactly what happened. And um, it, it's what's happening down there. We've got uh, Jeb Bush and AA uh, and all connected to the same coffee company organization. So if he gets the nomination and gets into the president, then there'll be really very little there. And Hillary Clinton. You're cutting in and out, Nelson. You're cutting in and out. uh, uh, Hillary Clinton was George Bush's lawyer on the Watergate committee. So you've got the left pocket and they've got the right pocket. And so they don't have to worry about even fixing the election. Well, that's true because uh, I think because uh, people still are thinking about in terms of Democrat versus Republican, but the the system is designed as it is up here, I believe, uh, for the continuity of government. So it doesn't matter who gets in; they they'll talk a good game during the election. They'll talk; they'll highlight their differences, which tend to be usually uh, centered around social issues, abortion and. Uh, gay rights or gun control and so forth. But once, particularly in foreign policy in the United States, uh, and, whoever yeah, gets and, in, it's it's a it's it's all about continuity of governance. And you know, I was listening to the the caller you had on earlier. Anytime I heard somebody call, talking about Oswald, we've got to always remember. 
Professor Popoff in the 70s wrote the famous book, The Second Oswald, and we know that there was even more than just two. There were three and possibly four. So whenever you're speaking to somebody about Oswald, you've got to ask them, well, which Oswald, the Minsk, Minsk Oswald or the, uh, the, the, the theater Oswald or the, the one that Michael Payne and Ruth Payne looked after? There was a lot of different Oswalds, and uh, for sure some of the Oswalds are still alive today. Well, I remember, Nelson, over the years when you've come into the studio and we've done JFK uh, specials and you, bring, you brought that poster uh, that has, what, maybe 20 or 30 different likenesses of, yeah. of Oswald, uh, all supposedly Oswald photographs, and many of them just completely, completely different. Yeah, and of course, we just, uh, the book of Mary Ferry and the, uh, the uh, monkey virus. Ed Haslam, yes. There's an Oswald that is working with Dr. Austin uh, Oshler and Mary Sherman uh, on with the head of the cancer uh, institute in the states. Right. So he was. It's the Oswald real Oswald is a very fascinating story that still hasn't ever come near the surface. It's very exciting, and hopefully we'll learn more about it in the future. All right, Nelson. Always a pleasure, my friend. Thank you. Thanks very much for the opportunity and. Uh, Hopefully, at some point, Americans will be able to break the hold on these. I don't know. Maybe Trump is the guy to do it. I don't know. I don't know enough about where he's coming from. But it can't last forever. At some point, the news has got to break. Well, you know, I um, I get a lot of heat for this because Trump rubs a lot of people the wrong way. And, yes, he is a braggadocio, braggadocio uh, uh, and, a, and, a, and a, a bull in a china shop. Uh, but latest polls, the latest Reuters Ipsos poll show him now among likely primary voters in Republicans out ahead 42 percent, 42 percent, despite lackluster performances in the debates, uh, despite constantly inserting foot in mouth. The point is, this is historical, I think, because he, uh, unlike any other candidate uh, in recent memory, has is on the precipice of destroying the the political elites, the political establishment's hold on the election process. And I say, I've said this many times. Uh-huh. I worry about Donald Trump because yeah. if he if he is able to hold on to this lead and there's no stopping him, Jeb Bush doesn't have a chance. Now the candidate of the establishment is is Marco Rubio, uh-huh. uh, who is Jeb Bush light. He's he's at ten percent. He's well, my advice behind. to Donald Trump is to get rid of that Treasury Department Secret Service uh, protection and get your own private protection. Exactly. Exactly. Right? I, I hear you, Nelson. God bless you, Richard. Thanks again. All right, Nelson. All the best. Uh, let's say hello to Earl in Oakville. Earl, good morning. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hi, How Richard, are you? I'm metaphorically speaking. I'm trying to figure out who's a spider and who's the snake, if you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all, my okay, friend? What I'm talking about, I want to talk to you about is what happened in Paris, mm-hmm. Beirut. Um, I'm appalled at what happened there. And, um I um, I think ISIS is causing racism throughout the world. What do you think? Well, that's certainly you know part of the, uh, the you know that's 
part of their their um, mo is to you know divide. Yeah, not they're turning all Christians against the enemy. Absolutely I mean, not. Very peace loving people. And... Absolutely not. Chris, they're turning Christians against Muslims, Muslims against Jews, Jews against Muslims. It's yeah, this is all part of their mo, and it's it's very effective. So mm-hmm. we need to, and and that's why I mentioned what's going on, what just happened in Beirut. We mm-hmm. cannot forget Beirut. We have to stand with Beirut. Why aren't we mm-hmm. flying? The Lebanese flag, at, uh, you know, at the football game. I just saw them flying the French colors at the uh, the Seattle, mm-hmm. uh, Arizona game uh, yeah. tonight. We should be doing this. We should. Why aren't we holding a vigil for Lebanon in in uh, in in, uh, in at City Hall? We had our mayor there twice in the last couple of nights holding yeah. a vigil a as we there, should. Richard. But let's not forget Lebanon. Yeah, you have a point there, Richard. Okay, that's all I have to say. Take care, pal. All right, Earl. Thank you for that in Oakville. Uh, Yes, now we, we need to stand together uh, with, with uh, Christians, Muslims, Jews, uh, whomever, it doesn't matter. All uh, reasonable, rational, peace-loving people. And we cannot allow uh, – it's funny, you know, I, I, I still refer to them as ISIS and someone was trying to correct me in an email earlier saying, no, it's not ISIS, it's the Islamic State or it's ISIL, that's what they go by. I don't care what they want to be called. I really don't care. They are they're dogs. They are they are swine. And I I use that term purposely because uh you know obviously that's not uh, an animal that they want to be affiliated with. Well, uh, these homicidal psychopaths um uh, May they go to hell. Maybe, maybe they, may they be tossed into a grave with slaughtered swine, as far as I'm concerned. This is what we're up against. And yes, we all need to stand together. Uh, and I, as I said, I am, I am, I am heartened by the fact uh, that, that good Muslims, uh, uh, peace-loving Muslims, are now standing up and let's hope that they continue to do this in the mosques throughout the West, condemning this. Let's hope that they are vigilant in the mosques, keeping an eye out, keeping an ear open uh, for this virulent pathogen that, that is here. It has been planted here. It is, they are among us. I am not being alarmist. It would be... Beyond naive to assume that what happened in Paris, what's happening in Beirut, is not going to visit these shores. Brace yourselves. Let's stand together. Enough uh, on that for now, but uh, unfortunately this is not the, uh, the last time we, were, we are going to be talking about this. Um, Again, I want to uh, to mention next week on the program, we will uh, continue along with our JFK anniversary special. Brent Holland, a very interesting gentleman. Brent's been on the program a number of times. I've been on his. He has a, a radio program out of Kingston. And if you just Google Brent Holland, you'll, you'll find that. Uh, Brent holds the distinction of, of being one of the very few Canadians who was asked to speak at the, um, the 50th anniversary in Dallas... Uh, well, that would have that would have been two years ago, 
and uh, uh, Brent has um, written a number of books about uh, JFK. So he'll be with us. And then the uh, the following week, as I mentioned, uh, Graham Hancock, certainly no stranger uh, to those of you uh, who sort of follow all things alternative, Fingerprints of the Gods, one of his uh, seminal works. He's coming to Toronto in December. He'll be on this program in two weeks. Next week of, uh, as well, Debbie Papadakis just attended one of her workshops uh, recently on... Uh, uh, overcoming blockages in life uh, using hypnotherapy. She is a wonder. She is truly remarkable. And uh, she'll be with us as well. All right, uh, Ian, thank you as always. Albert, always a pleasure. Back next week with a brand new program. Hope you'll be along for the ride. It'll be a wild one, I'll guarantee that. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't what won't be made known what you hear in the dark speak in the light and what i say in a whisper proclaim from the housetops move over aphrodite i'm coming home good night this podcast is proudly produced and presented by the zoomer podcast network home of great podcasts like marilyn lightstone reads idea city on the air and the garden show